Hi, everyone. It's Rachel Tageberg. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Vet Med Mind. I know you're just going to love this episode because I had the pleasure of speaking with the very cool, very interesting Dr. Brennan McKenzie. And he currently splits his time between practicing medicine at Adobe Animal Hospital and working as the director of veterinary medicine for Loyal. And Loyal is a San Francisco-based biotech company where they're researching canine aging and therapies to help improve lifespan and health span in dogs, which is really incredible. So we talk a little bit about that, but we also go through just his unique path into vet med, his time working with seals and sea lions, and then into primates. He's also done some really cool things focused around evidence-based vet med, and also has written in blogs and journals. He is a speaker and writer. So I think you're just going to love hearing all the amazing things he has to say about his journey in vet med. So please enjoy this episode and let us know what you think. And thanks again for joining us for the Vet Med Mind. Okay, so Brennan, I am so excited to have you here today to talk about your story. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. I was so glad that my friend and someone you work with, Laura, put us in touch um, just to talk about your experience in Vet Med, what brought you to Vet Med, and of course, the really cool stuff you're doing now. So tell me a little bit about your backstory. Um, you know, how did you get involved in animals and what was your path into vet med? I think it's probably a pretty untraditional path, though I, I can only speak for my generation because I know things are probably different now, 25 odd years out of vet school. I have both the strength and the weakness of being interested in absolutely everything. <laughs> and so uh, I tend to lurch from one shiny, cool idea to the next. And as an undergraduate, I, you know, I went to college because it was expected I'd go to college and I had no real plans. And I started out as a, a pre-med major because my mother was a nurse and I thought, sure, medicine, I'm familiar with that. And then I wasn't a very dedicated student as an undergraduate and didn't do super well in chemistry, physics, calculus, all the stuff that I didn't actually find that interesting. And so about halfway through, I realized, yeah, I was not going to look so great to med schools. Um, so I switched to English literature as a major because I love reading and writing and talking and all the things that go with that. And after a couple of years of finishing that, I thought, well, now I've got all the prerequisites out of the way. I might as well do the biology major too. So I ended up doing a double major. And along the way, I got the chance to uh, do some field research with uh, seals and sea lions. I worked with the elephant seals uh, here in California, where I went to school at UC Santa Cruz. And then I got a chance to go mm -hmm. and be a field assistant in Australia, working with sea lions there. And of course, my dream had always been uh, to be what in my generation we used to call uh, the guy from Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom named Jim. It was a guy who used to jump out of helicopters onto rhinos and put tags on them and things. Uh, younger people probably would think crocodile hunter, but it's the same kind of thing. You know, the guy who's out there in the wild wrestling with the animals and uh and I had also grown up in the era of the, the flourishing of primatology, you know, Brute Galdikas, Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, all of these just seminal figures in primate behavior. And along the way, I decided, okay, field, field biology and primatology is really what I'm interested in. And I eventually ended up in a master's degree studying animal behavior with primates. I worked with, uh, with a group of chimpanzees at the San Francisco Zoo, trying to come up with enrichments and ways to make their environment more interesting and more challenging for them. And I puttered around for a few years trying to make a living as a primatologist, but it wasn't the 1960s anymore. And primatology doesn't make marketable products one can sell. So the resources in that are pretty scarce. 
And it was a challenge to find work. And then suddenly, gosh, I'm 30. I'm married. We're thinking about kids. I got to do something, you know, that I can actually make a living at. And I happened to work with a group of veterinarians at one of the primate facilities I was at. And that seemed like a wonderful combination of the things that matter to me. It's intellectually stimulating and challenging. It, I think, creates something of value and service to the world. And I could make a living at it. And so I ended up uh, applying to vet school and for no good reason at all got in. And uh, and that's been my path. (laughs) That's incredible. And what a fun experience to get into field work in college and to just be exposed to that kind of stuff so early on. It's it's a it's a cool opportunity. You hear people go abroad a lot, but that's sort of a unique adaptation of abroad where you're really like in the field doing the things. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it was a wonderful experience. I got to travel. I got to do a lot of cool, exciting, painful things, <laughs> which I enjoy. So, yeah, it was a great it was a great experience. And I, I still have a fondness for for primates and for uh, field work, even though I've never done that so much as a vet. That is just so cool. I, what do you feel like was one of the big takeaways? You know, like, okay, so you went from working with primates, you did some work with seals. Um, and then you go into vet medicine, you know, with mostly dogs and cats, right. As your primary Mm -hmm. patient, like, what did you take with you from working with primates? Like, do you feel like some of that experience has like lended itself to how you interact with animals on your day to day? Sure. I mean, doing a, a, a graduate degree in animal behavior was always going to be useful when I work with animals, because I think that that behavior is a key part of what we do. We're seeing all of this, you know, growing recognition of that through Fear Free and some of the other initiatives to sort of alter how we handle animals. We're moving from the the kind of more livestock model, which is a little more rough to to really appreciating their natural behaviors. And um, cats, for example, experience a lot of deleterious effects of what are really not species appropriate environments. And that was my focus in animal behavior was enrichment and and species appropriate behavior for captive animals. So, you know, there were certainly bits and pieces I took with me. I, I also had the wonderful experience of moving from working with primates who are really dangerous and full of diseases we can catch to working with dogs and cats who are often not. So that was great. That was, uh, that was very easy for me when, uh, when I made that switch. Um, yeah, I think the main difference is that the focus in veterinary medicine, and I, I know we talk about this all the time is in many ways, much more on the people than the animals. A lot of the time, certainly in terms of your day-to-day clinical reality. And that's very different from field research, where you're often all by yourself on a beach in the middle of nowhere, staring at sea lions all day long. Um, so that was a bit of an adjustment. But I had lo- I had worked as a receptionist and as a waiter and all kinds of different you know jobs to pay the bills while I was trying to find a, an actual career that would do that. And all of those were were public service, people-centered jobs. And so I, mm-hmm. I like to make the point with younger veterinarians that nothing is wasted. That yeah. those experiences were just as valuable to me in communicating with my clients as the training I had as a veterinarian. And having a literature degree, I spend most of my time reading and writing and speaking now. And that's what I learned to do in that program. So nothing is wasted. Now, you know, you had that experience of going to vet school a little bit later on. And, you know, so it wasn't like you necessarily went from working in a veterinary practice to vet school and then working as a doctor. So do you feel like, there were some surprises that you experienced once you got out of the schooling side of it and got into the working side of it. Like, 
things you weren't expecting as far as, uh, I know a lot of times people struggle with things like communication with the team, just kind of working with a group in that way or any other sort of things you weren't anticipating? I mean, I have to say that I think coming to veterinary medicine from an untraditional path was a huge advantage to me. And and I saw that from the very beginning. I'd come from struggling to make a living at a lot of things to being able to sit in a classroom and learn stuff all day long. And for me, that was a joy. And for a lot of the students who had you know, had been what I call the James Harriet path, you know, that had had just imagined being a vet their whole life and had focused everything on that for so many years. And then they got to vet school and it was hard work and sometimes it wasn't fun. And, you know, and it was a bit of a letdown. It wasn't nirvana. And that was challenging. Um, I also feel like I had a lot of experiences in the real world and in terms of of a working environment and communicating with a variety of people, whereas folks who'd been in school and done nothing else but been in school all their lives had less of that. And that created some challenges. I also um, really thrived in the clinical environment. My last couple of years of vet school, in the first two years, I, I had questions about whether I was in the right space because it was very, very academic. And I had done a lot of that. And it's not my favorite thing. And then mm-hmm. clinics were really where, you know, the rubber meets the road and where all of that knowledge becomes organized in a useful way, along with all of your other skills and the rest of your personhood, right? And mm-hmm. and I found that having that larger, if not necessarily richer variety of experiences coming into vet med was a real advantage. Um, so, so yeah, I, I felt like it was less as a surprise that I'm like, okay, this is a way of harnessing all the things that I've been accumulating in my life to, to do something. Yeah. I love that. I, I, I think it's amazing. And even when I was in practice, I always loved recruiting people with unique outside experience. And especially when we were faced and are still facing this sort of issue of finding the right people and filling all the gaps in our staff. Uh, I always encourage people to kind of think outside the box, right? Of course, we would love to hire someone who's been a veterinary CSR before. But, you know, what about the people who work at the front desk at a hotel or, you know, have all this unique experience, baristas, people who work at CVS or Walgreens, right? Like people who have that sort of similar customer service experience like you were talking about in different ways and, you know, different structures, but have those transferable skills that can really fit so nicely into our practice and can really even help evolve our own practice by coming at it from new perspectives and uh, bringing with them all the skills that they learn. So I think it's amazing. I, I, I love this path that you took and, and how you approached it. Now, one thing when I was sort of reading about your background that stuck out to me, um, that you served as the president of the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medical Association or Medicine Association. Um, So talk to me about this evidence-based medicine and it seems to be a passion of yours. So talk to me a little bit about it. Sure. I started like most people when they graduate from school, just struggling desperately to be competent. And that takes a few years to feel comfortable <laughs> with what you do on a day-to-day basis. But as I said, I, I'm interested in everything and I do I do get bored easily. So I'm always looking for opportunities to discover and learn new things. And veterinary medicine is a wonderful field for that because there are always new techniques, new areas of medicine, new species. There are always things to learn. One of the things I discovered early on, and I do think I have kind of a a nerdy academic mindset, was that we're very comfortable as a profession making stuff up uh, or relying on anecdotes or what our first mentor or our last professor told us to do. And even though we're sort of a science adjacent profession, I don't think we're really scientists. I think we're in the business of solving people's problems in a practical day to day sort of way. 
And I think that that creates some challenges. It, it creates some great strengths because it gives us a lot of creativity and, and a lot of drive, but it creates some challenges because sometimes the scientific evidence really is useful in making decisions about the right and the wrong thing to do and the best way to handle a case. And I found myself researching the the backstory, the the provenance of my ideas and and theories and beliefs, and finding that a lot of them didn't have really strong roots. And so, evidence based medicine is pretty simple. It's a system for for explicitly, consciously, intentionally integrating three things, your own experience and expertise as a clinician, the things that your client wants, their goals, their values, their needs, their resources, and scientific research evidence. And rather than having research evidence be this kind of background thing where we vaguely remember reading a paper or hearing a lecture at a conference somewhere, you actually think about where do my uh, recommendations come from? Why do I do things the way I do? And how much confidence can I really have in that? Is there really strong scientific evidence? You know, I, if a dog comes in and it's been hit by a car and it has hemorrhagic shock, blood transfusion is clearly the right thing to do. And there's reams and reams of evidence to support that. If, you know, a dog has, say, or if a cat has interstitial cystitis, you can go back 100 years and find 100 different treatments for it. And I always tell people anything that has 100 treatments means none of them actually work because if one of them did, we'd get rid of all the rest of them, right? Sure. And so that's fine. Using those treatments is fine, but you need to be mindful of the degree of confidence that you can present them with. And so for me, evidence-based medicine was just a way of organizing the information that I needed so that I could say things to clients with confidence. I could say, yeah, you definitely want to do this for your dog. This is absolutely the right thing in this situation. And here's what we expect. Or, hey, you know, nobody really knows what the right thing is in this situation. I've tried this. It seems okay for me. Me, but, you know, I could be wrong about that because anecdote isn't super reliable. It's just a way of, of being a little more mindful about the, the, the source of support and the confidence we have in the things that we do and the things that we say to our clients. Yeah, I love that. And so what are you doing now in order to keep that sort of idea alive? Is, does that relate back to the blog that you have? Sure. So I I did a few things. I started by trying to to research things. And then I thought, well, I've done all this work. I should probably make a handout for my clients. So I started writing handouts for my clients. And I thought, well, gosh, as long as I've done that, maybe other vets would find that useful. I should put them somewhere. And blogging was kind of a new thing in the early 2000s. So I started the SkepVet blog and I started putting uh, my assessments of the evidence up there. And a lot of that initially had to do with alternative therapies, because those are things for which we have usually the least evidence and 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 so they're they're problematic in some ways and and I wanted to really dig into that but um, it's expanded to you know all areas of medicine now because I think the the fundamental principles help us in everything that we do along the way um, I got a little carried away and I thought well gosh I really really want to understand how to approach the science how to understand it how to use it effectively so I ended up doing a master's degree in epidemiology um, through a through an online program at the University of London um, primarily because my wife said yeah you can't stop working and go back to school it's it's time to you know pay the bills <laughs> so uh, so I did it as a distance learning program and and I focused specifically on clinical studies published in veterinary medicine and looking at how reliable they are where they're weak spots, what could we do to make the literature better? Um, and I worked with the Evidence-Based Medicine Association, which is a group of mostly academics, but also real-world practitioners, librarians, technicians, lots of people who are interested in this idea that we can do a better job in practice if we integrate the scientific evidence into our thinking a little more explicitly. Uh, so that's kind of always been my path. And and eventually, I got to a chance to write a column on evidence-based medicine for Veterinary Practice News. 
which was a wonderful way to to uh, look at a whole bunch of things that we do and ask, is this the right thing to do? How do we know? Maybe we should be you know, rethinking this. And I've also, um, as I said earlier, I've gotten old unexpectedly, <laughs> and I've been in the profession long enough now to, to see things come and go. Mm things that we had great hopes for that turned out not to work so well, things that, you know, we weren't so sure were going to be helpful that have turned out to be really useful. And, and so, yeah, it's become a habit. It's become just my approach to my practice and, uh, and part of how I think. Yeah. So what would you say to doctors that are, you know, curious about evidence-based and maybe that's not, you know, necessarily the passion of theirs that they seek it out, but what's the best access point for them to learn more about the medicine that they are recommending in day-to-day practice and, and places to like, obviously your blog has a lot of information. Um, are there other resources out there? Sure, there are. Um, not as many as I'd like, but there are definitely some and they're in different places. So uh, we do have a good set of resources on the website for the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine Association, and that's always a great starting spot. The 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 Brits are a little bit ahead of us in that the RCVS, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, has um, an RCVS evidence group, and they have a journal and they have a wonderful set of what we call CATS or clinically appraised topics, which are little mini reviews of very common topics that come up or questions that come up in practice. So their website is wonderful. The Center for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine at the University of Nottingham has a lot of fantastic resources. And there is actually a book, something called The Handbook of Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine, put out by a couple of uh, veterinarians at the University of Cambridge. So there are some resources out there. I would say that that my emphasis as a clinician, not an academic, is to make evidence-based medicine practical for people. Sure. And when you see these little pyramids that talk about the hierarchy of evidence, the little piece at the top are what we call clinical practice guidelines and systematic reviews. So these are evidence resources where other people have done the work of dredging through all the papers and looking at how reliable they are or not, and then published sort of a summary of that. And those are probably the most useful resources for busy clinicians in practice. If you find a systematic review, there was one I saw from last year just recently that I wrote about on diets and dietary supplements for osteoarthritis. And you can go through all the things that your clients might ask you about and the things that you might want to sell in your practice and look and see how much evidence there is and how strong it is in sort of one condensed place, which really saves you a lot of time. So you don't have to become an expert in doing all that yourself. Right. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And so um, I I have to now ask you about your affiliation with Loyal and working with them in addition to being a practicing clinician. So how did you get involved in Loyal and what was it about what they were doing that spoke to all of this other interest that you have in vet med? It was really just the perfect kind of of serendipity. So Loyal is a biotechnology company based in San Francisco, and our focus is on developing medications to extend lifespan and delay age-associated disease in dogs. And I was approached by uh, Francis Chen, who used to be the head of translational medicine at Loyal, about participating in an observational clinical study that we ran a couple of years ago, because I had done some clinical research. Uh, I'd worked on an oncology study when I was in my general practice, and she she reached out and I couldn't actually do that. It was right about the pandemic time. Things were a little weird in the practice. It wasn't a great time, but I was, as I said, always interested in the next new thing. And I was like, what else you got? Anything else I can do? And as it happened at the time, they didn't have a lot of veterinarians uh, in practice. They had a lot of DVM PhDs. Their one sort of most experienced veterinarian was on deployment in the army. So they needed somebody with kind of some real world experience and practical approach to it. 
And I came on as a consultant and largely my job was initially to sort of be the conscience of the company and say, hey, you know, let's make sure we're always focused on what works for veterinarians, what works for pet owners. Yeah, I know the researchers would like six biopsies on every dog every time they come in. That's not going to happen. Here's why, you know, to just bring that practical voice and kind of center the experience of of the veterinary professional and, and the pet owners. And then it evolved over time. They, they I guess, found me useful because they hired me. So I work part-time for Loyal and part-time still in clinical practice. And part of my job now is largely communicating about what we're doing and about aging biology to veterinarians and veterinary technicians. So I, I've done a lot of journal writing and I speak at a lot of conferences. And it's just about sort of raising awareness of how aging works and that it's actually something that we could maybe do something more effective and more preventative about than what we're doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, what are what are some of those highlights as far as what you guys have learned so far through your research and studies? There's a tremendous body of preclinical research in a lot of different species. Of course, the the mice and rats and flies and everything, but also in in some primates and even in dogs, looking at ways to extend lifespan and delay disease. And I think the main value of that is that we found a lot of underlying mechanisms that are very consistent across species. The things that, that you know, we need to survive and that eventually lead to our, our illness and demise as we age are very central parts of mammalian biology. And so they're quite highly conserved across different species. And so we can learn a lot from each other. And some of the things we've learned is that, uh, for example, we live in a time of uh, nutritional abundance. <laughs> and I think we recognize in humans that that has a downside, that a lot of, uh, you know, the rise in obesity and a lot of lifestyle associated diseases are, are, are related to the fact that our ancestors evolved in conditions of scarcity and our biology is tuned to that. And when scarcity is no longer the norm, uh, we our bodies don't deal very well with the overabundance of nutrition and the lack of physical activity. And Clearly, as veterinarians, we see the same thing in our patients. Obesity is rising in dogs and cats. There are studies clearly relating it to negative health outcomes, to disease, and to mortality. And there are particular mechanisms underlying that. It's not a black box. So part of what we're trying to do is, one, raise awareness that many superficially unrelated things like cancer and diabetes and kidney disease are actually all tied to aging into a fairly limited set of underlying mechanisms that we know a lot about and we could potentially target. And some of those targets are lifestyle changes. We already know that reducing obesity extends lifespan. We already know that that regular preventative health care is associated with longer life expectancy, things like dental cleanings. So there are definitely things we can do now, but we also think there are things we can do in the future to prevent a lot of the age-associated disease that we mostly are stuck reacting to now. And those may be changes in nutrition. They may be pharmaceuticals. That's what Loyal's working on. There may be other things we haven't even thought of. But I just want people to start thinking about aging as not this inevitable, immutable fact of life looming over all of us, but just another aspect of biology that we can understand and, and intervene to change. Yeah, I think it's incredible. And I, I mean, I think you can probably get anybody on board for having their pets live longer and avoid disease. <laughs> it, Absolutely. It's an easy yeah. sell, right? So, <laughs> cause I, I, I know everybody wants that and it's just so cool and so interesting. And it's, it's great to have this sort of conversation because, you know, even when I was in practice, I didn't feel like I had exposure to the research that was happening always necessarily around me in the community. And it's very cool to just know what companies like Loyal are working on and, 
things like that, that can, that can also just help bring all of our practices aligned with similar goals, right. And making sure we're all doing the same stuff. And I also think that, that we sometimes undersell our ability as veterinarians to participate in producing the information that we need to take better care of our patients. We often think of research as a specialty academic thing, but this study, for example, that we're going to start at the end of this year, looking at one of our our products for life extension in dogs is going to involve at least 50 sites, 50 veterinary hospitals, general practices across the country. Hopefully a thousand dogs will participate. It's going to go on for four years. And we're very much in interested in this being a study of real world owned dogs in a real life context and involving veterinarians. And I think that has several advantages. It has the advantage, of course, of generating information that's more broadly applicable than sort of narrow specialized specialty research facilities. But also, it's an opportunity for veterinarians. When we talk about sort of burnout and fatigue, I think sometimes we forget that veterinarians are really smart, really driven people. And new opportunities, new things to learn, new ways of harnessing their skills and their expertise are part of the way that we stay engaged and enthused about our profession. So getting involved in research for me has certainly been revitalizing for my enthusiasm. And I think a lot of veterinarians can participate in clinical research or even just learn more about the research and the foundations behind the therapies that they use. And that provides a whole new career path for people. Yeah. That could be really exciting. And for the support teams that are involved in it as well, to know that, you know, there are pets in the practice that are are part of something bigger and that they're contributing to potentially life-changing, you know, things for all the pets that we love so much, which is really very cool. Awesome. Um, So I'm, I'm just completely in awe by you. I mean, you you have done so much. You fill your days with so many things. You know, I, you definitely keep yourself busy, like you said, (laughs) but you also have some really interesting hobbies as well. I saw that you play the mandolin and guitar. And so that's kind of cool. Um, just make time for all of it, which is, I think the best. And, you know, just, I think that a lot of people, I was actually just had a conversation with somebody yesterday about, Finding the time, right? It's like we always have we have the time. It's just a matter of making choices around how we use it. And um, you know, with somebody who does have a lot of hobbies and interests, you know, talk to me about how you sort of make space for all these things in your life. I think some of that is again going back to the advantage I had of having come to veterinary medicine in a different way. Um, I care a lot about what I do and, and I'm trying all the time to, to not only do the best I can for my clients and my patients, but also to give back to the profession. But ultimately it's not my identity. And I think for people who have always wanted to do this and be this, it is their identity. And that makes it a little bit harder to separate, to have that work-life balance we always talk about. I graduated from vet school at 35. My daughter was born halfway through my clinical year. So I had something else very, very significant to focus on right from the start. And I have always tried really hard to put up kind of a firewall between my work and my family and my personal life. And and it's certainly it's a struggle, but I think it's necessary. Um, And for my own survival and mental health, I know that exercise is critical. If I don't exercise four or five, six days a week, I don't feel good. I'm not nice to other people. It's a really important thing. And making time is is less and less optional. The older I get, if I want to be able to walk up the stairs comfortably, I need to do my workouts. And (laughs) And so, you know, that's something that that I think has become a routine and a habit. Mm-hmm. 
And I have the advantage of, as I said, being ridiculously unfocused and interested in everything. So my daughter, for example, uh, studied uh, Irish dance when she was little. And and I had always listened to Irish music growing up, but I didn't really you know, know much about it. So I became more interested in, well, what is a jig? What's a reel? How do they work? And that led me to playing instruments and eventually to playing mandolin all through that connection to something that she was doing. Yeah, uh, She went to a, a community fair and saw a, a bunch of folks doing some martial arts and said, dad, I want to do karate. And she was like six, but I don't want to do it by myself. So I said, okay. So I signed up with her and we did karate and she did a week's worth of karate and decided she didn't like it. And I spent five years getting my black belt because I actually like hitting and kicking people apparently. Yeah. So my, my connection to that, you know, other life has been really, really important. And I think it's necessary for all of us to have what we need to give what we want to, to our professional lives. Yeah, of course. And also like all these unique novel experiences help create this sort of well-rounded person that gets to show up as your best self every day in practice or at a clinical study or, you know, talking to a client. Um, and I, I think that's it's really great. It's grounding, right? And it just allows you to to become and be the best version of yourself. But it's true. You have to choose to do this all the time. You know, it can be easy not to, um, but it's true. I, I agree. The older I get, the more I recognize and feel the repercussions of that. Okay. So I want to move on into our rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, you had mentioned that you'd been to Australia. You did a little bit of traveling. I want to know what places on your bucket list. Where do you want to go? Well, fortunately, at the beginning of next month, I'm going to one place that's always been on my list, which is Scotland, because uh, way back in the 1750s or something, the Mackenzie ancestors came from there. I'm actually doing a two-week coast-to-coast cross-country backpacking trip. So I'm hiking my way across the country, 180 miles in two weeks. So I uh, uh, that's that's the next place on my list. That sounds incredible <laughs> and and probably so beautiful. It's going to be just breathtaking, I'm sure, the whole I way. I bet you it is. That's my effect. Yep. And it'll Good be a nice you. chance That's... to not have to do anything but walk and sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope you have a nice playlist or something going on. Is oh, it... like I'm not yeah. carrying batteries. Batteries are heavy. No, I have a little <laughs> tiny old-fashioned Kindle that doesn't take too much power that I can read. That's it. Yes. Okay, good. Well, next question then. What are you going to read? What is, what's your, for fun reading? I typically alternate back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. So I'm a long time uh, Tolkien fanatic and I like fantasy and sci-fi. You probably see the map of Middle Earth on my office wall oh, there. Yes. And uh, and then, of course, I tend to read mostly science for nonfiction. So currently I'm reading Peter Atiyah's uh, book Outlive, which is a, one of he's one of the leading figures in the sort of aging and longevity space. So I'm getting getting some of that from the him. And I'm actually reading a collection of poems by Robert Burns because my literature major side has never left me and I am going to Scotland. So, yes. Oh, that's really cool. I also am a big fan of fantasy books as well. Um, are, have you ever read Patrick Rothfuss? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. You know, I have only ever reread his books in my whole life. I don't reread books, but the way that he writes, it just, it's like transported. Like I feel like I'm just somewhere else and it's such a beautiful world. Makes me so happy. I actually have them all on audible too. So if I'm ever just like, I'm like, let's just listen. (laughs) Absolutely. No, I think, I think we were talking about escape and balance and there's no reason not to do that in your imagination as well as in your real life. So true. It is so, so true. Um, So again, you're a musician. So what is your favorite type of music? 
Well, I play mostly uh, Irish traditional, uh, which is the sort of diddly diddly stuff you hear in the background and Titanic and things like that. And <laughs> uh, and I'm my favorite is really uh, the stuff I grew up with, which is sort of 70s folk and folk rock. I like to sing around a campfire. I calling me a musician is is a bit of a stretch, but uh, <laughs> but I, I like to I like to, you know, get around a campfire with a bunch of people and and, you know, pass a bottle around and sing old folk tunes. That's really my, oh, my jam. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Now, what is your go to karaoke song? You know, I don't have a go-to karaoke. Part of the problem is because pop music is is the usual lineup for karaoke, and I do not have a pop music voice. <laughs> Try to find like some, you know, Clancy Brothers or James Taylor at a karaoke place, and it's really a struggle. So, so I can't say that I have one of those. <laughs> I would listen to you sing any of those as long as it's on American Pie, because that is like a seven-minute song. <laughs> yes, yes, that in Hotel California. I try not to do. I was traveling in Laos with my wife once and we were at a tiny little village and there was a bar there and we stopped at the bar for a drink and the bartender, this was his whole vision of America was Hotel California and he wanted to sing it. And the two of us sang that song, the entire length of that song, every single verse. It was magical, but not something to be done often. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. My my sister and I just recently, we've been singing a duet, uh, Barbara Streisand, Celine Dion duet since we were kids. <laughs> and we've never, ever sang it in front of anyone before. And we had an opportunity to sing at karaoke. It's also like a seven minute song. And we Absolutely. were like, we started, we were like, everyone, we're really sorry. We just have to live this out one time, <laughs> just once. And I'm we sure did. somebody captured it on video. We must see that. Oh, yeah. You should have seen the guy who is the DJ who was doing karaoke. Didn't even know what was happening. He was like, this is not what karaoke is, people. <laughs> <laughs> it was epic, though. So those that's the best. You just got to do it sometimes. That's right. Um. So lastly, if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? I think it would probably be the same advice that I would give to most people who are young, which is stop imagining that there's a right answer, that there's a path in front of you. And if you just figure out what it is, you'll get where you're supposed to be. I think that there are a million paths in front of you. And the drunkard's walk is how you will experience the most of life and eventually get somewhere that is good for you to be at. I don't know that there is a supposed to be. Um, and I think I spent a lot of my time as a young person looking for for my purpose. And uh, and that can distract you from all kinds of exciting, interesting things. If I recommend anything to anyone, um, it's there's an Australian uh, comedian and musician, Tim Minchin, and he's mostly known for writing uh, the musical Matilda, but he does a lot of other things. And he gave a commencement speech at, I think, the University of South Australia, where he talked about sort of not having long-term goals, which is very weird for veterinarians because we have to focus on these long career paths. Um, but you, you, you're focusing on the long-term goal. You miss the shiny thing out of the corner of your eye that might actually be the most satisfying thing you run into. So that would be my advice to myself and anyone else is, is just be where you are and, and whatever path you take will get you somewhere interesting. That's beautiful. And I, I needed to hear that as well. So I appreciate you saying that. That's great advice. Well, Brennan, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been super enlightening. And I know there's just so much great stuff out there for all of our listeners to explore more into Loyal and how they can support what you guys are doing there. And of course, all your blog and learning more about evidence-based medicine. So much to learn. And of course, all your information will be available for people to follow up with you directly too. So thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been wonderful. Well, thanks for having me. It's great fun. Good conversation. 
Thanks, everyone. Sean here. Can you believe we're already halfway through the second season of The Vet Men Mind? If you know of anyone who is a veterinary success story, please send them our way. We would love to have them on the podcast and share their story with this amazing community to continue to inspire and discover what is in the vet med mind. Until next time, folks, have a great day. 